Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, a tough week, and a lot of things have happened, and I've heard from many of you, and um, I, I want to just say this has reminded me, believe it or not, I, I had a, ma- a major when I was in college at UC Santa Barbara in sociology, which <laughs> one would think is a complete throwaway major, but it wasn't at all. It's helped me a lot in my ministry, but I'm reminded right now of the contrast between Karl Marx and Max Weber. Marx believed that things moved upon a determined path determined by historical forces. And even now we hear oftentimes, well, you're on the wrong side of history. That, that is an ideological sort of foundation that is sort of the legacy of Karl Marx in the world. But Max Weber argued that uh, industry and commerce, etc., the more prominent determinative force was religion. And therefore, we had a, a whole economic system that was rooted and grounded in work ethic and uh, a belief in the individual and the individual capabilities of a person and that those unleashed resources of, of humanity gave rise to a, a huge economic force in the world. And so it was Martin Niemöller that reminded me that um, religion is really a critical piece of, of our life and of our society. And, and we live in a time when, when matters of faith are being marginalized. And to actually articulate faith is to give rise to all kinds of guffaws. And in the course of this past week, and then over the weekend, to find out that a, a, um, a sitting president has been blocked from what constitute the primary mode of communication out to the entire world um, is a little bit scary. And yes, it's private industry, but this is, this is sort of the, the, the turn of, of events over the last hundred years or so where now monopolies are held by tech companies. And if they disagree then they can shut you off, cut you out. And, and so this is a little scary. I, I have always believed in, in freedom of speech. Of course, we all do. But if I want to get up here and tell you the earth is flat, let my thinking compete in the marketplace of ideas openly. And we should not have someone over us, whether it's a corporate elite or a governmental elite telling us what we can and cannot say. 
Let the, let the people say that. Let the people decide. Let the market decide. But now with these turn of events, it, um, it begins to be a little scary. In my reading, I, I read many journalists, columnists, and uh, most of which are Christian. And Christian, Christians are becoming categorized as the enemy. And so it just struck me, and I was reminded then of Martin Neumuller, who spoke out during the, the oppressive state during the 30s in Germany. And I've kind of reworded it some, just as a, a reminder. First, they came for the extremists, and I did not speak out because I was not an extremist. Then they came for the ranchers, the farmers, the blue collars. And I did not speak out because I was not a dirty job man. Then they came for the Catholic and Orthodox clergy. And I did not speak out because I was not a Catholic or a Jew. Then they came for the evangelicals. And there was no one left to speak for me. The Southern Poverty Law Center would gladly name the Catholic Church as a hate group because it does not adhere to the current set of narratives that exist in our world. And it is kind of the go-to organization for defining what is hate and who is, what constitutes hate speech. And that is being devolved into, I can define as hate speech anything that I don't like if I'm in charge of the means, not of production, but of communication. And this is a scary time. But let me, let me just say, the church has been here before. The early church in the first century required that men and women of faith stand and endure whatever it was that came their way. Church, the, the faithful of the church all over the world have, have had to stand and be faithful to, to the message that God has given to us in the midst of whatever state, whatever state they found themselves. And, and again, Max Weber decides, defines the state as that which wields force within a geographical area. So the state in relationship to the church has often become an oppressive reality. And in the face of it, all I can say is that I stand with my, my Orthodox Jewish friends, Rabbi Fischel, and I had a little fender bender not too long ago. It was a, a kind of a fun experience, actually and the Catholic clergy who, who stand with the deep tradition of the church and try to stay away from the political realm. And then my evangelical brothers and sisters in churches all over the, all over the nation who want to maintain a free pulpit 
and free speech for all. It's a, it's a scary time. And we, we must continue to pray for our nation. What happened this week, they say, was not precedented since 1812. Well, that's not even true. 1954, there was an uprising of Puerto Rican nationals that, that breached the capital. And there have been other instances in which there have been demonstrations that approached the capital. This was an abhorrent situation, as we all agree. But the uniqueness of it, well, even in the, the book of Esther, she's with her father Mordecai, and she's being told how there is a coup to overthrow Xerxes in Babylon at that time, and that God has raised her up for such a time as this to be faithful in the midst of a tumultuous time in the, in the government. This will pass, but God's people need to stay free and firm and clear that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ and him alone. Lord of all, King of kings. Well, let's go to our text. Speaking of Christ, second chapter of Luke. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth, and with them, and all was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and all the people. May God add his understanding to this hearing of his word. So Jesus goes down with his parents to Jerusalem to one of the festivals. And there were, a, there were three festivals a year that the Jews came down to Jerusalem to attend. So Jesus is 12 years old, so he's been there probably at least 30 times. This is not an unusual thing. And they all went down and and you can imagine, it was like church camp. Everyone's going down together, all the families, and the young people are off in a group all by themselves, and the moms are talking, and dads are talking, and, and it's just a fun pilgrimage going down to, to Jerusalem. It was, a, it was a festival. And it was 
something that they, they looked forward to and they enjoyed. And as would happen, well, Jesus is 12. They don't need to watch him every single minute. He's got his friends. They're out messing around doing what 12-year-old kids do. They're boys and girls together. And, and of course, parents are hanging out with each other. And it's just one of those times. And then they take off. They head back north to Nazareth. And after a while, Mary and Joseph realize that Jesus isn't with them. Well, I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. He must be with the kids. No, they check where the kids are. He wasn't with the kids. And so they went into a mild state of panic, as you can imagine, how hard it would be. Remember when I was five years old at the Safeway in Spokane, Washington, and I heard my name over the loudspeaker. Will Kurt Anderson please come to the service desk? I was lost. <laughs> I don't know. I was looking at cereal boxes or whatever kids do in a grocery store. I have no idea where I was, but I know I was lost. And mom was worried. So she went and found me that way. And you know how it is. Even just when, when kids are little and even when they get to be older, how hard it is when we don't know where they are. And so Mary and Joseph, and it, it says it took three days to find him. Well, we don't know if it's a day back, a day looking. We don't know what it is. But they took a long time to find him. Where did they look? They're too far from the beach for him to be down there. Um, Basketball courts, soccer field, where the little kids hang out. They went to every conceivable place where they could find Jesus, their own, their own, their own little 12-year-old boy. And when they finally found him in the temple, they rebuked him. What have you done? Why would you do this to your mom and dad? Why would you do this to us? Why would you leave us and not tell us where you are? Interesting how Jesus handles this. Interesting how he responds. You had your father and me worried sick. And you, can, you can hear it. I mean, we've all been there. We've all given that kind of lecture to our kids. You had us so worried. You had your mother and father worried. And Jesus says, why, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? The contrast. And this was not a rebuke of Joseph. But it was a clear statement that Jesus understood himself and his own identity. His calling. He understood at 12 years old that he was the Son of God. And it was his calling that defined him. His identity was defined 
not by all kinds of things that, that define us, by birth, by genetics, by what our parents tell us, where we grow up, all of the many things that define a human being. He was defined by the same thing ultimately that defines us, and that is our calling, the calling that God has in our lives. And our response to how we are to live our lives. So Jesus responds to this, to this calling by being there with the religious men, the one who were the most knowledgeable, asking questions and listening. He wasn't telling them what to do, but you know how we can discern real intelligence by questions that are asked, often much more than by things that are said, by assertions made, questions that were asked. And we see this in Jesus' life. When they come and accuse him later on, he responds by asking them a question. And he always knocks them back on their heels. And I'm sure as a 12-year-old, he was knocking them back on their heels. This one who was not only obviously brilliant, but was clear about who he was in relationship to God and what it was that he was to be about. And so he says to his parents, why were you looking for me? I wasn't lost. I was where I belonged. I was in my father's house. By implication, the question is to them, where were you? They were the ones who were lost, not Jesus. Luke plays this out also in the story of the prodigal son. The, the son who comes home is the one who is received by the loving father, and the one who remains lost is the elder brother who stands there judging the younger son. Here he is. He took all that money and squandered it on wine, women, and video games, and you welcome him back. He was now lost. The parents in this instance were the ones who were lost and now are found. But what compelled the parents? <laughs> Obviously. Their love. Love for their boy. But more than that, there is the compulsion of love that God has for us. And that theme is played out in the prodigal son story because the son is off and he's finally got lousy food and lousy work and he has no place to lay his head. And then he thinks about home. Thinks about mom's cooking. Thinks about what it means to be at home and to be safe and to be warm and well-fed and well-dressed. And what compels him to come home is love. He knows he's loved. That is the compulsion of our faith. Not threat. You do this or I'm going to strike you from heaven. Not the compulsion of threat, the compulsion of love. 
but we would not do anything. When we know how loved we are, when we know how grace has saved us, when we know how overwhelming the love of our God is for us, we would not do anything to violate that love. And the real guilt is not from violation of law, it's a violation of love. Our God loves us so much. And, and I would turn my back on that? This came home to me. I've shared this before. If you've heard it before, just forgive me. This came home to me when I was a 17-year-old kid. And my dad had a Bonneville station wagon, which was about from here to the window back there. And I was one of the first to drive, so I was the most experienced. And during football season, I'd load up the car with a bunch of guys, and we'd bomb around to the game. And then after the game, we'd go to the, the pizza place and then, and then drive around Riverside, just doing dumb stuff, being dumb kids. We went to this new development, Canyon Crest, overlooking Riverside, where we could see out. And, and every now and then, a rabbit would go darting across the street, and I'd hit the gas, and Never hit me, but just being dumb, being dumb kids. So I drove everyone home one particular night and finally pulled in. And by the way, there was never, never any drinking or anything of of that sort involved. It was just being dumb kids. And I pulled in, it was about 1.30, and I was oblivious to time. Parked the car, walked in the front door, in the entry of the house, and then just immediately to the left were two steps down into the living room, sunken living room. At the end of the living room was a large picture window. And I stepped in. All the lights were off. I heard nothing. But I just had a sense. And I went into the living room, and I turned, and I could see my mother silhouetted against the picture window at the end of the living room. She didn't move. She just said, honey, I'm glad you're home. I never did it again. If I was going to be home after midnight, I called. I would never again violate such love. That's God's love for us. He loves us so much. When we wander out, when we're doing dumb stuff, when we're just being thoughtless, we finally make our way home. He says to us, honey, I'm just glad you're home. Just glad you're home. I was lost. Now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. Will you join me in prayer? Thank you, Lord, for this love that will never let us go. Thank you, O Lord, that you have given us a love 
from even before the time, for the, before the dawn of time. You love us with an eternal love that is far beyond our comprehension, but we have moments, O oh Lord. And we sense it, we feel it, we know it. Thank you, O oh Lord. We pray in the name of your Son, our Savior Christ, who saved us and who is our God. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.